Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, filmmaker Cynthia McCowan joins me to talk about her short documentary, Unacceptable Risk, Dr. Margaret Krepke on cancer and the environment, which has been selected for screening at the 2021 American Public Health Association Annual Meeting and Expo, which is being held from October 23rd to the 27th. Here's the trailer. I went into this with a number of preconceived notions. I learned an enormous amount. I thought that all chemicals were tested before they were put on the market. Turns out not to be true. I thought that anything that's known to be a carcinogen would be regulated also not true. And I thought that if there were regulations about something, that the regulations would be enforced, which is also not necessarily true. So that was a huge eye-opening experience for me. Cynthia McCowan is a writer, producer, and director of award-winning documentary and educational films for digital and television broadcast formats. She's also been a managing editor and creator of numerous health, medical, and educational websites. And her background includes college-level teaching, nonprofit fundraising, and community organizing. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe, leave a review, and share. And now on to my conversation with Cynthia McCowan. Hello, Cynthia McCowan, and welcome to Making Media Now. Hello, Michael. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, Cynthia is joining us today to talk about a film that she made called Unacceptable Risk, uh, which essentially is a, um, a profile of the work done by Dr. Margaret Kripke. And Cynthia, tell us who Margaret Kripke is and the nature of her work, please. Margaret Kripke is a very interesting individual. She is a professor emeritus of cancer immunology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. She was recruited by MD Anderson to be the first woman as head of a cancer research department and the very first person to head a cancer immunology research department. And she is a very interesting and compelling figure. What is it about her work that caught your attention and what is it about her work that that's kind of serving as her mission these days? Among her many accomplishments, Dr. Kripke was appointed to the president's cancer panel by then President George W. Bush. And the president's cancer panel looks at topics in cancer research every year to basically do a state of the nation report on where are things uh, with regard to cancer and cancer research. 
And so she had been on the president's cancer panel, which is a a two person panel um, appointed, as I said, by the president. Um, And they looked at different topics over the course of a couple of years. She was there on cancer survivorship and other kinds of best practices. And one year they decided to look at the influence of the environment and specifically environmental chemicals on cancer. And so um, when I first heard Margaret speak, which was about 10 years ago or so at Harvard Law School, she was talking about how she was initially very skeptical about looking at this topic of cancer and the environment. Um, because essentially the research to date, people were quoting research that essentially said that, well, environmental factors are only a very small risk to cancer, something in the order of 6% of cancers Mm -hmm. and um, mostly in occupational settings, et cetera. So what was really interesting about Margaret was that as a panelist, she decided she really was very thoughtful about this. She she thought, well, I don't really buy that this is maybe that important a topic. However, it's still 6% of cancers. So that's a lot of people that are affected. And a lot of people are concerned about this issue. A lot of people want to know, well, how did I get cancer? Why did I get cancer? I don't have a family history of it. So what happened? She decided with her co-panelists to essentially um, hear testimony from across the country over the course of two years about different research about cancer and the environment. And so this was gathered through occupational studies, through cancer researchers, through testimony from um, environmental researchers, public health folks, as well as affected community members. Mm-hmm. What she found out <laughs> is that, gee, there, there may be a lot more cancers attributed to environmental factors than we initially thought. And one of the things or the the things that she most focused on were the fact that, first of all, there are many chemicals that are produced on the market. Um, There are about 80,000 chemicals and about 3000 of them are in high production and only a fraction of those chemicals were ever tested for safety. Your film brings up a a really interesting slash frightening (laughs) um, fact that, if I understood it correctly, research into chemical harm will not take place until there's already evidence of harm. So in other words, the research is not pro-preventative. That's right. I mean, I would say that there are researchers that are really trying to look at different chemicals or different combinations of chemicals or chemicals that do different things in the body, such as promote the production of estrogen. And so they're really trying to pinpoint what kinds of chemicals and combinations of chemicals could potentially do long-term harm. But there isn't a lot of money (laughs) for that type of research. And, you know, in terms of our 
chemical policy, we don't really require chemicals to be proven to be safe before they're on the market. And then to take that another step or two further, we're not very good at regulating the chemicals that that are chemicals of concern. And then, unfortunately, as you know, we know from recent media, um, a lot of companies, um, a lot of those regu- regulations just are not enforced. So we have a problem also of not knowing necessarily what chemicals are in the products that we buy, our everyday household products, you know, the products that we live with, our furniture, you know, our clothing, that type of thing. And that's that's a problem. Yeah. Dr. Kripke makes reference uh, to herbicides and cosmetics and things like nonstick pans and and everyday uh, cleaning products. And you mentioned the six percent statistic. What's your sense or what's your knowledge of um, the distribution of of that percentage? Is there data around are these environmental cancers taking place among certain age groups or certain uh, uh, demographic groups? Well, the 6% is more of, based on research that was done several decades ago. Okay. But it's it's what people commonly refer to mm-hmm. when they have an understanding or they think that they know what percentage of cancers are attributed to chemicals and environmental causes. So that percentage really hasn't been updated. And it's also very, (laughs) now this is a very hard subject to quantify because one of the problems is that cancer is a multi-stage process. Sure. So a lot of times you can't have a correlation between a specific chemical and a specific exposure and know, oh, that chemical caused cancer. Sometimes you can. Right. And that's when people have been able to identify and quantify cancer clusters. Mm -hmm. Um, Recently, there was a report um, that was done by the department, Massachusetts Department of Public Health, that was actually a study that was a 20-year study that was published that showed a correlation between a childhood cancer cluster in Wilmington, Massachusetts, and a specific chemical. Yeah. But again, as, as you pointed out, it's often after the fact. And, you know, one could also speculate that maybe a lot of cancer clusters <laughs> are not really identified as such. And that process of um, essentially proving the existence of cancer clusters uh, is a is a particularly onerous one. Uh, I would say people living old enough to remember and living in the greater Boston area. You mentioned Wilmington, uh, Woburn, Massachusetts, also comes to mind. Yes, the whole W. R. Grace lawsuit and class action suit that was the subject matter of the the book and the film a civil action and at the at the core of that was essentially the plaintiff's ability to prove uh, the existence of these clusters you know you cite the real challenges in, in right. being able to do that 
And, and sometimes, so in the case of Wilmington, they realized that there was a cancer cluster because once that chemical of concern was taken out of or was filtered in the water supply so that the chemical ended up in the, you know, Wilmington water. <laughs> so when that chemical was taken out and the and there was no longer a cluster of pediatric cancers, then they realized, OK, that was the culprit. At one point in your film, Dr. Kripke, uh, she says there is a blame the victim approach to environmental cancers. Give us some insight as to her uh, what she was meaning by that. So I, I think that there is a real focus on behavioral and lifestyle causes to cancer. That's what she was referencing, that when people talk about cancer prevention, they're often talking about, you know, don't smoke, stay out of the sun, exercise, have a healthy diet, don't drink alcohol or drink to excess. Mm -hmm. And those are all really important things. I mean, no question about that, that those are risk factors. However, those aren't the only risk factors and that we're, we're really doing a disservice to people when we don't recognize chemicals in their own environments, either in their communities or in their workplaces or in their everyday household products. And particularly, you know, there are communities that have very high rates of air pollution. There are communities that live, you know, people live and work right next to, say, petrochemical plants. Right. You know, it, Houston is a really interesting example because there's no zoning. And so there are communities that have existed, you know, there for decades that are being encroached by industry and polluting industries. And so in that respect, you know, people don't have control or full control over their situation. And so I think that's what where victim blame comes into it. When you only look at behavioral factors and not, you know, the environment in which people live and work. Yeah. The air, the air you breathe and the water you drink is not a lifestyle choice. Right. You could be the healthiest. You could have the healthiest lifestyle imaginable and still, you know, have the misfortune of living downwind or downstream uh, from, you know, from one of these from one of these plants. Another uh, really interesting comment that Dr. Kripke makes, she says that prevention has no face <laughs> and then therefore uh, it poses challenges that uh, cancer cures or, or you know, cancer treatments uh, necessarily would. So say a little bit about that, if you would. I love that statement because I, I feel like she really hit on something that's very powerful. Um, I think that when you think about cancer, you really think about a community of people coming together to take care of the person who has cancer. And that community is family and friends and clinicians. And, you know, and it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing when that happens, mm -hmm. but we don't think about, well, what, 
what are the cancers that could be prevented? And those cancers that could be prevented, they don't have a face. They don't have, you know, the person for whom you dedicate a cancer walk to, you know, they don't, they, they just, you know, we never know that. And so I think that's not as compelling for people to get behind. So would you say, not to put words in the doctor's mouth, but would you say that in addition to devoting research or dollars rather to this type of research uh, from Dr. Kripke's standpoint, another step in the right direction would be more rigorous testing of chemicals before they hit the market in their various manifestations through all the products that we mentioned just a little while ago, uh, you know, for any evidence of known carcinogens or suspected carcinogens is is that the type of process that she's trying to you know gather gather force around yeah a- absolutely and part of the bigger story is that we're talking about systems change so in addition to testing chemicals for you know, the bad culprits before they're actually put on the market. And, you know, there are new ways of doing testing that are efficient. There's there's high throughput testing where you can also test, you know, basically, you know, lots of different chemicals quickly at mm-hmm. once. But it's also really thinking about, well, what about green chemistry? You know, what about how can we invest in creating safer products and creating safer chemicals? And so it's, it really is a systems change. And, you know, much like um, we think about climate also being a systems change, you know, we need to go from a transition to, you know, a petrochemical based economy to a green energy economy, there are very similar parallels to chemicals and, you know, safer chemicals and safer products. Your film is going to be featured at the 2021 American Public Health Association annual meeting and expo, which is going to be coming up at the end of October. Tell me about what uh, what the benefit of being able to screen to that audience would be and, you know, what the ideal outcome might be. You know, it's interesting. It's the film's going to be screened to people who I think are already pretty much on board with these ideas. Uh, You know, I think public health practitioners look at the bigger picture of what's going on in people's lives and people's, you know, communities and their homes and their workplaces. Um, However, I think that it's very important to also think about, well, what are some tools for the next generation of public health practitioners? And so one of the things that I think, you know, about this documentary, which by design was a short film, I mean, it's it's under 16 minutes, is that it's something that can be used in classrooms. Right. And it's it's kind of a shorthand maybe for telling a story about you know, an environmental problem that affects a lot of people and some potential solutions to it as well. So I, I think that the public health crowd is 
very embracing of this in general. But my hope would be that they actually use this film in classrooms, in conferences, um, in, you know, ways that they can put this message forward. Dr. Kripke is such a credible person um, that, you know, she's a really good messenger for this message. How did you find out about her and her work and what was it about her and her work that felt so compelling to you? Well, a couple of things. I mean, one is that I think I, I've I've done some work, uh, a previous documentary of mine called One in Eight Janice's Journey was about um, a young woman who discovers she has advanced breast cancer. And in addition to going through her treatment journey and, you know, her thoughts about that, we also go back to her hometown and we start interviewing people and interviewing activists, breast cancer activists, who are looking at possible associations between their breast cancer and environmental impacts. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that was very compelling to me also was that my film was selected to be broadcast on one of the discovery channels. And one of the things as a condition of broadcast, they had to cut some time out of the film to fit their slot. But one of the things that they wanted to cut out was the environmental piece. And so it was kind of disturbing to me because um, I felt strongly that that was an important piece of the story. And what I was told was that, um, well, we don't have evidence about this. We don't really know. So we're not going to we're not going to raise people's fears about this. And so we're going to cut this part out. So when I heard Dr. Kripke speak (laughs) and she um, had this basically this perspective that well, this is something that we need to look at. We need to look at the impact of chemicals on cancer because it's really bigger than we even know. And we need to figure out how we get to know what the impact is. So that was part of the really compelling story for me. Yeah. Do you, um, my guess is that there was some, some a possibility of advertiser influence or a fear of offending either advertisers. for. It was a sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> That particular blog. It was a sponsor. Yes. Do you have a sense not to not to sort of be asking you questions outside of your uh, your lane, so to speak? But do you have a sense of the risk posed, if any, by there are so many chemicals uh, these days? Let let let's just keep it to the category of cleaning products that market market themselves as green, market themselves as organic. What is the vetting of their chemical makeup? versus, you know, those that don't fall into that category? That is out of my swim lane. I I really don't know. I I think that um, there there are tools to check on the safety of certain products. There's there's an app called Clearia, which is basically you can put in the product name and they can basically come back with a list of the ingredients and let you know 
whether, you know, there are high hazards for cancer or reproductive issues or, you know, autoimmune issues or other types of things based on a body of research that, that they've done and they've put together. But yeah, I, I don't think we should go there. <laughs> can I, so can I say it? one more thing that was very compelling about um, yeah. Margaret Kripke? And I think that one of the things that she really, I mean, she's an incredibly compelling person. I mean, she's, she's very committed to this issue. You know, she's been retired twice over, but she still is working on this, you know, issue. And I think that it's a really, she's a really great example of a scientist, a prominent cancer researcher who was initially skeptical about the topic, but then, you know, when presented with new data, hearing testimony for a period of two years from people across the country, she changed her thinking and she was open to understanding the problem in a new way. And I think that that's also very compelling in a way to reach other cancer researchers and clinicians who I think would identify with her story. Absolutely. So in addition to playing at the American Public Health Association annual meeting and expo, uh, will there be any opportunity for the general public uh, to get a look at your film? Yeah, I've done um, several virtual screenings. Um, one was in um Derry, Northern Ireland in August. Um, it was part of a cultural film music festival. Um, and it was actually paired with, it, it was very interesting, paired with Dark Waters, the yeah, film about PFAS and DuPont. Mm -hmm. And um, I did a virtual Q&A with a scientist from Silent Spring Institute, which is a Newton-based organization that focuses on environmental links to breast cancer and other health issues. Um, and she's an, she was an expert, Dr. Laurel Shader on um, PFAS. So it was kind of a nice dovetail of issues. And the other Q&A after Dark Waters was screened was with Rob Balot, who was the attorney that successfully won the case um, against DuPont for the dumping of the PFAS chemicals in um, the water supply in the community. And then I have an upcoming screening at the Boston Public Library in a couple of weeks. Um, I've had other virtual screenings through the Transition Network and looking to do other you know, public screening, some in person and, and some virtual. So, you know, one of my goals is also to really try to get the film out to a community of cancer researchers and clinicians, because it is a topic that isn't really high on the agenda of cancer research. But as Margaret says, it really should be. It really needs to be. There's a lot more work that needs to be done in this area. Yeah, it would definitely seem as a prime example of the adage uh, of a uh, ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure uh, could not be more true. We're speaking about a film called Unacceptable Risk, and the director of the film is Cynthia McCowan. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about the film. Uh, if folks are interested 
um, in the film and in the subject matter. Any place in particular you want to point them to uh, in terms of getting more information and keeping track of maybe where the film is going to be available and screened either in person or virtually? Absolutely. And I should also give a shout out to the Cancer Free Economy Network. They were a co-collaborator of this film, and they have a lot of information um, about the film, as well as screenings, as well as other information and ways that people can get involved. Um, So Cancer Free Economy Network is um, comprised of organizations and individuals who care about um, chemicals in cancer. Um, It's it's a national and it's turning into be an international organization. So um, definitely go to the Cancer Free Economy website. It's cancerfreeeconomy.org. You'll be able to find lots more information about the film and about this topic. Excellent. Well, I will make sure that links to that website are in the program notes for this episode. And again, Cynthia, I thank you for your time and for the film. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. 